0: Galatians chapter 6 if you're a guest with us we just work our way through a a book of the Bible at a time and we're we're winding up Galatians here we've got uh, this sermon and next week to finish up the book today we're in chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 and in honor of God's Word would you stand with me as I read it to you brothers if anyone is caught In any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch for yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. One who's taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to the flesh, will of the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Amen, this is God's word, you can be seated. I called this, and I don't know really why, the word just came to me, this message, practicum. When when you take a course in a certain field of study and you get towards the end, your final course is usually called the practicum. In other words, how do you live out or how do you practice this thing that you've been studying, that you've learned? And that's kind of where uh, this letter has taken us. He's been teaching us that, that, that it's the spirit, not the letter of the law, that when we walk in the spirit, we fulfill the law. We meet the requirements of God. He, he meets it through us. The spirit within us meets it. Meets it. So now that we've kind of learned all of that and understood his argument in Galatians, why the Galatians uh, people of the church of Galatia didn't need to be circumcised, didn't need to try to keep the law, that Jesus had done it for us, Now he gets down to, so if that's true, then how do we live it out? And it really starts a few verses earlier. We could have read the last couple verses of chapter 5 about keeping in step with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. So, uh, but then he gets down into the nitty-gritty here in 6, 1 through 10, and we'll, we'll do the last two and then the rest of the passage next week. So Paul's explained why the false teacher's insistence on circumcision is unnecessary, and he's told the Galatians that the answer is really to live by the Spirit, not to try to, to do the, the laws that were given by Moses, but to live in the Spirit, which is on a whole other plane from the law. It supersedes the law, it's above the law. And that loving our neighbor fulfills the law, and that we're keep, to keep in step with the Spirit. But now he's going to give it, in, get into these practical applications of what it looks like when we live that out. What does it look like when we walk in the Spirit? What does it look like when we keep in step with Him? And this really is what makes Christianity so different from other religions that emphasize you do this and do this and do this to be good or to be accepted or to be spiritual. Instead, it's Christ has done it. And because he's done it, this is what your life will look like. It's a very, it's a completely different perspective. So verse one again, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch, on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So Paul had just listed for the Galatians in the previous chapter, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. He's told them, what does it look like when you you live in your old nature? And what does it look like when you're in the spirit of God and keep in step with the spirit? And this paragraph describes one of the main ways that's expressed while we build one another up in love. If the spiritually mature in the congregation see someone in the fellowship that's caught in sin, they should intervene gently and humbly for their good. The mature, in contrast to new believers, are those who have become familiar with God's word and familiar with the battles that we face as Christians. Now, Paul has pointed out that really the battle begins when you come to Christ, because before that there's no battle, the flesh just always wins. But when you come to Christ, we start experiencing this battle, and and those who have been walking longer know a little bit more about how to deal with the battles. And so they're the ones that are to help the ones still caught in sin. The ESV word caught here can be translated in trap sin enslaves, slaves and it can become a trap from which it's really difficult to escape. The word transgression means to fall out of the way or uh, it's probably contrasted with what he said just a few verses earlier, to keep in step with the spirit. In other words, you get out of step with the spirit and back into that old nature. So that may mean that Paul's referring back now to the list of those works of the flesh that he talked about in chapter 5, verse 19 to 21. If those works of the flesh have trapped someone, the spiritually mature need to help them get out of the trap. As a young boy, um, uh, I used to spend my summers with my grandfather. And I remember that around, he had like a, uh, we call it a gazebo today, but it was rectangular. It was just a roofed area that was open on all sides. And on the, on the edges of it, he had his, his grandfather's traps, Bear Howard's traps. And there were all sizes. of. They were all rusty and old, but I liked to get them down and play with them. And the bear ones were really big, and I wasn't strong enough to get it all the way open. I had to have another kid stand on the other side and we'd push him down and we'd stand on it and set the trap. And there's a a round spot in the middle of the trap where the animal would step to catch it. So I remember the strength it took to to set the trap and how, how much effort it would be to open that trap, to get out of the trap. And it's a picture of what he's talking about here, how sin can grab hold so strong that you need someone's help to get out of it, to step out of it. So some traps of sin require the power of the Holy Spirit and prayer along with a fellow soldier in Christ to help open that trap's jaws. Watch out that you're not tempted to pridefully think that you're better though when you go trying to help him because when we start dealing with the sin and we start hearing the person's justification for the sin, if we're not spiritually mature, if we're not looking to Christ in his word, that justification can work in our own mind and start tempting us thinking, well, maybe it's okay if I do that too. So that's why it has to be the mature and that's why they're to watch out for themselves to make sure that they aren't caught in their own trap. You know, when we'd play with those traps, we had to be very careful that we didn't accidentally let them catch us. Paul used some harsh discipline when a person was proud of his sexual sin, but in most cases, a person will feel convicted all on their own and can fall into condemnation. And that's why he says you gentleness is required. Paul already expressed the importance of expelling the false teacher from from the Galatian church, and he was severe when he was addressing that issue. He used some tough language. But this is more along the lines of seeing your brother who's struggling to break free from some sinful behavior or justifying it, and that requires gentleness, whereas dealing with the false teacher required firmness. Now... It's very few of us who enjoy confrontation. I know I certainly don't. We can be too timid to help a person caught in sin. That's more my problem. But the real problem is that we either don't see how destructive the sin is, or we don't have the love of Christ for that brother or sister. Because if we did, we would do everything We can to help them get free. It's one thing to let a new believer grow in grace and let the Holy Spirit bring conviction in his time. You know, they're still struggling with, as they come out of the world and come into Christ and start learning to walk in the Spirit. And sometimes it's best to just, as as they struggle back and forth, to watch the Holy Spirit sanctifying them. But when they're stuck in that trap, that's when they need our help. The word and the spirit continually help us all grow in grace and convicts us of areas in our lives that need to be more like Christ. We aren't fruit inspectors though. We don't go around checking to see that each person is perfect because none of us are, amen? This is referring to those sins of the flesh that can really entrap us, take hold of our life and and to which it's really a struggle to to break free. If we're going to serve one another with the love of Christ, we have to risk the confrontation to help restore the erring member to spiritual health. It usually requires us coming alongside them, taking time with them to help them to rely on the power of Christ to set them free. That's an expression of the familial love that we should share as a congregation. Love we have for one another, desiring the best for each person that is part of this body of Christ. If the person senses anything other than love and gentleness, he or she may reject or ignore us. We tend to fear either. If they run, we feel we've driven them out of the fellowship. But if you're gentle and loving, it is their sin that's driving them away. And if they're a genuine believer, they will be back. Your efforts to contact them and prayers for them will prevail, and that takes genuine concern and willingness to devote your time to helping them. But there's a problem with the modern church, at least the church I'm familiar with in the United States, and maybe not so much in some of the third world countries. But here in the U.S., Too many of us are gospel consumers. And by that, I mean, we want to come, we want to sing some songs, we want to hear a good message, and then go do our thing the rest of the week, forgetting about our brothers and sisters in Christ, forgetting about the needs that we've seen. We haven't allowed the love of Christ for one another to surpass our love for self. We need to realize that we are in a spiritual family that's eternal. The people around us are going to be with us forever. Think about that. Jesus gave his life for them, and that's how much he loves them. Are we willing to share his heart for one another in the congregation? Those fruits of the spirit are not just to be expressed to God, but also to the body of Christ and those outside the church as well. We should be caring for one another at least as much as we do for our own family. The fact that so many in the American church don't care for one another to this extent is one of the main signs of our immaturity. Aren't we supposed to be like Jesus? then how has he cared for us? How willing has he been to restore you and to encourage you in the faith? How deeply does he know you? That's our model and should be the goal of each of us. I'm so glad I'm seeing it being developed. I see brothers and sisters caring for one another reaching out to each other, helping each other financially or physically. James chapter 5, 19 and 20 reiterates this need. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you should wander away from the truth and someone turns him back, he should know that the one who turns a sinner back from the error of his way will save that person's soul from death and will cover over a great number of sins. And that leads us to the next verse, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Everyone has a burden to bear, for we all take up our cross. And Paul said he felt the daily burden of seeing the churches mature and seeing them stay faithful. There are, there are burdens of, of health of finances of relationships and we all struggle with our own nature love cares about our brother and sister in Christ is going through and and we need to learn to see it i i uh, i love this gift in my wife she She's, she's teaching Sunday school right now, but before she's out mingling and mixing and saying hi to everybody. And if she sees someone, she can see right away, right in their heart and know that they're struggling. And she'll pull them aside and pray with them. What an example for the rest of us. How we need to be like that. Jesus, our ultimate example, our 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 burden-bearer par excellence. His whole purpose in life was to bear our sins. That's what we just celebrated. What a burden he bore by taking our sins upon himself and being our ransom. Comparing our lives to his will keeps us from the temptation to think too highly of ourselves and complaining about our minor sacrifices. What a tiny thing it is to bear our brother's burdens when we realize that Christ took our entire burden on himself, the burden of the world. Paul assumes that we all have burdens and the help from the family of God is needed. Of course, we first cast our burdens on the Lord as we're told in Psalm fifty-five, twenty-two: cast your burdens on him and he will sustain you. But we should realize that we are not meant to be an island We all need the help of others and others need our help. Helping bear others' burdens is not simply for pastors. This is a command for all believers. Even the Apostle Paul needed help carrying his burden. He said that a number of times in his letters. Verse three, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. (laughs) If we think we're too important, to stoop down and help a weak one, we forget the true meaning of greatness. The greatest is servant of all, Jesus said, and exemplified. Pride makes us useless to the kingdom. We are all really nothing without him. And if the great apostle said that of himself, surely it's applicable to all of us. It's God's love for us that gives us value, and the Spirit who does the work in and through us. The next time you're tempted to be prideful and elevate yourself above others, just remember you're nothing. And it's only the gracious, merciful love of God that gives you and the person you're comparing yourself to any real value. And daily confession is the best medicine for a prideful spirit. At the end of your day, we've talked about this in the last few weeks, at the end of your day, just take, take a look back over your day and think about where you could have been more Christ-like. Where did you stumble? Where did you fail? I, I often find it's in the words that I say. It reminds us how short we fall. While pride keeps us from seeing our own faults, searching our hearts is a way of taking the blinders off and letting the Spirit convict us. We all need time of humbly coming before the Lord. And as I suggested last week, doing as David did, praying, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Self-conceit is fatal for burden-bearing because it turns us into judges rather than burden-bearers. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns us how self-deception leads to self-conceit and disposes us to be quick when it comes to judging others. C.S. Lewis wrote, In mere Christianity, and this one really punched me right between the eyes, if you think you're not conceited, it means you're very conceited indeed. Oh, that hurt. Verse 4. But let each one of us test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So how do we test our work? Is what we're doing today of lasting value? Or is it wood, hay, and stubble that'll be burned up on that day? Or will it remain? We can boast in what the church is doing, but what's our role in that lasting work? How are we participating? Are we listening to the word and the spirit or just going through the motions? And if we're hearing, are we then responding and cooperating with the Holy Spirit? It is strange to read a passage that tells us that we can boast in ourselves, because in 1 Corinthians one we we're told that if we boast, it should be in the Lord. So how can we reconcile these two statements from the same author? The content of the letter to the Galatians is that salvation is all by grace, and we add nothing to it. And for that reason, and Paul's statement in Corinthians, I think we should understand boasting in ourself alone rather than our neighbor to mean that in the the testing results from our work, we find that we have yielded to the life of Christ. In other words, we see that we actually yielded to him and he did something through us that's lasting. We not only have testimonies of others, but we have a personal testimony of our part in the body of Christ. We've seen God at work in our life. If we've let the Holy Spirit produce fruit in our lives, we have reason to boast in what God's done through us. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse three, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We should not downplay the work that God does in and through us. Um, You know, there's a a kind of false humility that that says, oh, it was nothing, it's all Jesus. See how humble I am? But real, a true humility says, I recognize God used me, I'm thankful Thankful to him that I yield to him, that he did something of value through my life. He gets all the glory, but I'm so thankful he used me and that I was available for his use. Verse verse five, for each will have to bear his own load. Hmm. Wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to bear others' burdens. Perhaps the meaning here is the same as Romans 14:12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The Greek word for burden is different. It's baros in verse two, meaning a weight or a heavy load and portion. Whereas verse five is a common term for a man's pack. You see two different words are being used here. So we are to bear one another's burden, which are too heavy for a man to bear alone. But there's one burden which we cannot share. Indeed, we do not need to share because it's the pack light enough for every man to carry himself. And that's our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. The prospect of standing before the bar of heaven and the majesty of the risen Lord to give an account for every careless word has a remarkable way of disillusioning us of our self-deceit or self-conceit. It's not hard to feel spiritually spiffy when we measure ourselves against others, but when we envision our sinful little selves before the one from whom even earth and sky will flee away, grandiose ideas about who we are and what we've done will themselves flee away gazing at the final judgment ought to be a regular part of Christian discipleship. Verse six, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Notice also that it is in the contents of talking about the Spirit's work that Paul drops this line about teaching. Being a Spirit-led church doesn't mean avoiding teaching substantively in the book of acts the spirit was performing amazing wonders yet the church didn't say oh well you know who do we really need the bible instead we find they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching a spirit led church is a teaching church and that's why we have so many bible studies I've learned from so many others who sowed into my life and my duty is to acknowledge and support their work and pass it on. Like the apostles in Acts 6, those who devote themselves to preaching the word should give themselves to prayer and the study of the word. The support of their congregation frees their time so that they can still support their family. And the cross-references, if your Bible has cross-references here, it always indicates The good things are actually material things. And indeed, those who labor in the word often need material help. But surely, all good things are more than simply material things. How about testimonies? Words of gratitude, appreciation, and fellowship. In fact, the word here that's used uh, is related to the word koinonia, fellowship. The preaching of the word is not supported by payment alone, but by fellowship of meeting one another's needs. And this illustrates mutual burden bearing that was described in verse two. Now this congregation has amply supported me. So I'm really preaching to those who are online or guests who are with us that are gonna go back to your congregation uh, because my congregation, this congregation understands this very well and is very generous to me if your church is well fed on the word it will be sharing the word of others and that support makes it possible to do that this is why jews when they would build a synagogue they would wait until they had 12 families to start a synagogue in a town because the tithe from the 10 would 10% would support the rabbi you see? Now today we have these fancy things we can look Google up. What is the average pastoral salary in the state of Arizona? And it will give you a, uh, an average. But it's so much better to poll the congregation and find out what's the average income of the congregation because the pastor lives in that town with the same uh, rental needs, the same financial requirements that that town has. So. Probably the best way to determine a salary is to determine the average income of the congregation so that he can spend his time in the word of God in prayer. Of course, this can be abused by the congregation or by the pastor. The congregation should never order the preacher as to what to preach, nor should the preacher grow lazy because he's not supervised. I've met pastors who were abused by their congregations And I know of congregations that abuse their pastors. I've met pastors who who were abused and, and suffered horribly, their family torn apart because of things they went through in their congregation. But this verse gives us ideal situation when the pastor's faithful to teach the word and the congregation shares all good things with him. And I'm thankful that's what kind of congregation we have here. Caring for the flock, And the study of the word to deliver a message is a full-time occupation and often more demanding than secular jobs if it's done in obedience to the Holy Spirit. And finally, verses seven and eight, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. A physical and spiritual law that we tend to forget is that God is just. He He's just to repay and he's just to punish. You can't fool him, nor will he violate his own laws. If you want a pastor that plums the depths of God's word and has time for you, then he needs our support. Want kindness, mercy, and love from others? Sow kindness, mercy, and love. And if you sow deception, apathy, and arrogance, guess what you will reap? How often I see this play out in my own life, in others, with pastors in the city, with congregations, both in a good way and a bad way as well. Thank God this law regarding our sins was superseded by another law when Jesus reaped our harvest of judgment upon himself on the cross. Amen? Aren't you glad? This verse should be a guiding expression. What are you currently reaping? Think of what you sowed that would result in what you're now receiving. And remember, heavenly reward will only fully be realized when we get there. Uh, this morning, in uh, as our, in our Bible study, we were talking about traffic, how traffic brings out the very worst in us, and how it 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 bothers us. Um, and I often, because of this passage, when someone cuts me off, I'm often reminded when I cut someone off, right? Or when I forget to use, someone forgets to use their blinker. Oh man, why didn't he turn his blinker on? I remember. Oh yeah, I do that sometimes too. Sometimes it's a reminder just to look at ourselves. Sometimes we see someone who seems to have it all, who is selfish as anyone could be. Reaping doesn't always appear on the surface. That's why people are so shocked when a celebrity takes his life. When we lived in Japan, we knew some of the wealthiest people in Japan. And yet, behind the scenes, there was chaos and turmoil. A psalmist had this very question of why some would live in rebellion, but live what appears to be a blessed life. And in Psalm 73, he wrote that he finally realized their end their destiny, and it all made sense. The law of sowing and reaping is sure to take place. By the books we read, by the company we keep, and the leisure occupations we pursue, we can be sowing to the Spirit. Then we are to foster disciplined habits of devotion in private and in public, in daily prayer and Bible reading and in worship with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. All of this is sowing to the spirit. Without it, there can be no harvest of the spirit, no fruit of the spirit. We must decide which harvest we desire. If you decide what it is that you really desire, then you can start sowing in that direction because you will reap. So do the flesh and reap destruction, so do the spirit and reap life eternal. Once you decide, sow accordingly, but don't think you can have both. One or the other is going to prevail. Dear believer, crucify the flesh and walk in the spirit. That's love, joy peace and patience. But wait, isn't eternal life a gift not merited by works? Yes, but when Jesus is your Lord, you walk in the Spirit who leads you into the works of God that God has prepared in advance for you. And as you walk in the Spirit, your life overflows with the fruits of the Spirit. Love serves one another, and bears one another's burdens. Will you ask God to express this kind of love through you?